Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing well? Okay. Hey, I am excited about launching into this new series. I've been planning this for months and just an opportunity to begin to walk through portions of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's going to be really, really fun for us. But I want to start with this. I want to talk to you about a phrase that's become quite popular these days, killing it. How many of you guys have heard the phrase killing it? How many of you have used the phrase killing it? Right, dude, you're killing it, right? That guy surfing steamers on the red board was killing it. That celloist playing Rachmaninoff was killing it. Those shoes are killing it, right? If you look online, killing it means everything from having a ripped body to cool fashion style, career success, high level of achievement, envy producing vacations, fabulous hair, immense personal charm. And everybody wants to be killing it. You know, even at church, people want to know that they're killing it. So what I'd like you to do is turn to the person next to you real quick and say, thou art killing it, okay? Go ahead. (laughs) Nobody else in Georgetown is doing this this morning, are they? It's our new liturgy, thou art killing it. (laughs) Now the pressure to kill it though, it's starting earlier and earlier for our kids. Not making this up. USA Today wrote this, the two-year-old daughter of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, little Northwest, was killing it when she got baptized not long ago. <laughs> killing it at baptism. You know, uh, Beyonce's daughter named Blue Ivy is apparently killing it. I think in our culture today, we've kind of perfected the art of killing it. I grew up in Seabrook, Texas. Uh, in Seabrook, Texas, we did not kill it, okay? We might have wounded it slightly. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even sure we knew what it was. It's hard to kill it if you don't know what it is. So I'm reading about killing it. I'm online and and there was a 20 something who put it this way. He said, whenever I see somebody else killing it online, I'm like, dang. And he actually didn't use the word dang. He used a different word to express his frustration and discontent. But then he said, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm like, meh, meh. Now the truth is the pressure to be killing it is immense. And we all know about this. Right, you know, I compare other people's beautiful Instagram life with my real, dull, ordinary life. And I'm sitting there going, are my kids killing it? Are my abs killing it? Is my hair killing it? Is my resume killing it? Is my vacation killing it? Vacations are turning like into a competitive sport, it seems like these days. And plus, the problem with killing is it, is it never stays killed, does it? You have to kill it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And, and this drive to be killing it is leading people to overwork addictions, envy, we all know about this. It leads to anxiety, depression, isolation, exhaustion, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of failure, no kidding. There's an article by a 25 year old woman who said she feels like a failure because she is not yet the CEO of a tremendously successful startup. 25 years old, killing it's not doing it. In fact, killing it is killing us. And so today I wanna take you to a city where they practically invented this concept of killing it. But then one day they learned about a different way to live, and we can too. The city is called Corinth. 
And we're gonna sort of walk through the whole dynamics of Corinth. And this is gonna take a little patience on your part. Let me just say from the get-go here, this message is gonna be very different than my typical message. It's gonna be a historical context message. I'm kind of setting the groundwork for the entire series that we're gonna be doing. And in fact, even future series based on the book of 1 Corinthians. It's really important. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna walk you through the history of Corinth so that you can see the incredible relevance of this book of 1 Corinthians for your life, for our church, and for where we live today. Okay, so let's dive in here. Corinth, located in Greece, is actually on an isthmus, okay? Narrow strip of land that connects two larger areas of land. And on one side, there's a harbor that leads to Asia. On another side, there's a harbor that leads to Italy and Europe. So basically, this was a very strategic little piece of land. I mean, if commerce and trade were gonna take place, this was the strategic trade route. Corinth had actually been destroyed by Rome about 150 years before Jesus. But now the Roman peace, Pax Romana, meant that global trade was available on an unprecedented scale. That would mean unbelievable wealth. A city built on this site was clearly going to be a gold mine, which is why Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth basically from scratch just a few decades before Jesus. In other words, to use our language, I would say that Corinth was a startup with all the dynamics of a startup. Caesar populated it mostly with ex-soldiers and freedmen, ex-slaves. So there was no landed nobility, no landed aristocracy there. It basically meant it was just a, a mob of hungry, scrappy, highly ambitious risk takers who were just dissatisfied with the old ways, the old traditions, and they were driven to leverage new opportunities. So this in turn attracted entrepreneurs from Greece, Italy, Egypt, all around. And that infusion of new capital began to generate enormous wealth to the point where a lot of Corinthians had acquired some serious fortunes that were quite new. Now, all that meant Corinthian real estate was just exploding. In fact, one ancient petitioner asked the famous oracle of Delphi, how may I get rich? How may I get rich, son of Zeus and Leto? And the oracle of Delphi answered, by acquiring what lies between Corinth and Sicyon. In other words, Corinthian real estate, baby. Buy property, flip houses, and you'll be rich, right? That's where they were at. Corinth was also a center of innovation. It was new, built by the best city planners that Rome had to offer, right? So it was incredible. One ancient writer said it had the most sophisticated water distribution system in the entire ancient world. And if you know anything about the Mediterranean world, water was always a really big issue. Now, all that just reinforced the notion that they believed human ingenuity, human technology could take care of any problem that people faced. They were immensely proud of their city. They were very self-sufficient. They cherished this story that they had divine origins. According to legend, it was a divine founder, Corinthus, who developed and founded Corinth. In fact, the first travel guide in history, written a little after Paul's day, was written by a guy who was kind of like the Rick Steves of the ancient world. And in this travel guide, he devoted this huge chunk to Corinth because it was this magical, fabulous place. And he includes this observation. The idea that Corinthus, founder of Corinth, was a son of Zeus, I have never heard anyone say seriously, except a majority of Corinthians, okay? They're like, yeah, we live in this magical, divine place. Also, partly because the population there was very transient, with lots and lots of sailors, lots and lots of money, Corinth developed a reputation for an anything-goes attitude towards sexual expression. 
Aphrodite was the goddess of love, beauty, and fertility in the Greek pantheon. And the temple to Aphrodite was in Corinth. One ancient writer just a little before Paul's day said the old temple at Corinth had more than a thousand temple prostitutes as a part of the way that that cult worked. Another Greek writer, Aristophanes, said promiscuous sex was so associated with Corinth, they made up a word, basically Corinthianized, as a euphemism for sexual activity. Plato used the phrase a woman of Corinth as a euphemism for a prostitute. Corinth was basically like the home of the original summer of love. Okay, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was also religiously pluralistic. As of today, um, archaeologists have uncovered at least 26 temples, okay? 26 different gods that had temples there. And of course, emperor worship was a big deal because it was founded by the emperor Julius Caesar. All the immigrants that would come into this place, they would bring their religions, their gods with them, including some from this little nation of Israel who worshiped the God of Israel. You know, by Paul's day, Corinth was kind of the future. In fact, when this part of Greece was made a colony of Rome, it was Corinth, not the ancient historic Athens, that was named to be the capital, okay? See, Athens' best days were behind it. Corinth's best days were still in the future. Athens versus Corinth was kind of like the tired, aging past versus the vibrant, vigorous future. It's kind of like New York versus Texas, okay? We're the future, baby, right? (laughs) People are moving here. And and there was ceaseless building that was going on and and all the projects, all the monuments that were built, they would have these inscriptions designed to promote the status of the builder because it was all about status, wealth, education. It was a status-obsessed society. I'll tell you about one inscription. A a man by the name of Babius had a fountain built in Corinth as a monument to himself. (laughs) And this is what he wrote on it. Babius paid for this monument out of his own wealth and approved it by his own authority as a city magistrate. And just to make sure nobody missed it, he actually had that inscription chiseled on there twice. Okay. You're killing it, baby. You know, back then, if you were to walk around the city of Corinth, from what I understand from, from reading books and commentaries, you would see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these inscriptions everywhere. One author wrote this, (laughs) Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Wow, what a weird society that must have been, right? (laughs) Where people would publicly post their accomplishments, their honors, their experiences, their possessions, just to be seen and liked by others. What a weird place that must have been, right? A number of authors have noted that inscriptions were to Corinthians what social media is to us today. Who you are, who people think you are, that, that's all it's all about, right? Who you are, in fact, is who other people think you are. Well, Paul, <laughs> he's gonna have a lot to say about boasting, about reputation, about weakness, about what life is really all about. And like I said, we're actually going to run two series this year built on passages from the book of 1 Corinthians. Because I'm telling you, these are people, real people like you and me. And they're trying to figure out, how do I get the good life? What is life all about? And and it may seem like status, wealth, success, self-promotion, having a beautiful body, having a healthy body. That's where it's all at. It may seem that way. Now, given the contest for wealth at Corinth, The Corinthians and that whole society developed a reputation very quickly as being the most competitive city in the ancient world. Not just financially, but in other arenas as well. 
The Isthmian Games were held there. The Olympic Games were often held in Corinth. And those were the most popular competitions in the ancient world. They featured not just athletic events like racing, wrestling, but also music, poetry, and oratory contests where people would compete with each other and the winners would get lots and lots of money. And tourists, they would come from all over the ancient world to watch this. And they would bring their tourist dollars with them. A writer named Apuleius says this, Corinth was a city of unprincipled profit takers who would stop at nothing to outdo, outgain, and outearn their rivals. Is that sounding at all like any place you may know, right? It was so cutthroat that one ancient proverb said, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Basically in Corinth, only the tough survive. They valued toughness so much that Corinth was the first city in Greece to host the gladiator games. But if you dug a little beneath the surface of this great city, you found a strange kind of vulnerability, a strange kind of despair. And so it was into this city, this amazing city of unprecedented wealth, uber-competitive, hyper-sexualized, status-obsessed, religiously pluralistic, untethered by tradition, proud, self-sufficient, striving, anxious, spiritually empty, that one day came a tent maker named Paul. And he brought with him an alternative to this lifestyle of killing it. Listen to the book of Acts. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. You know, anti-Semitism has a very, very long history, doesn't it? Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. People, the fact that Paul was a tent maker is going to be really important to this story, to this letter, to what we're going to learn. Making tents, you know, being bent over, working with canvas and leather, fixing harnesses, that was considered to be a slavish, menial, low status occupation, and that was Paul. He stayed with the tent makers. In fact, he would live with them in their houses, which would have doubled as their shops. And you have to picture Paul teaching while he's doing this. So often I talk with people, and a lot of people I think just have this image of Paul kind of leisurely walking around, just dropping these gems of wisdom everywhere he goes. Now, Paul was multitasking, working at his craft while trying to teach people. And when these tourists would come for these competitions, it's kind of interesting because Paul this brilliant thinker and speaker, he was not one of the orators competing with other people for lots of money. This is really, really important. He was slaving away as a menial craftsman making tents for the tourists to stay in. And here's the thing. This is what turned the Corinthians upside down. Paul didn't have to be doing that. And they knew it. I mean, Paul, he was well-educated. He had a brilliant mind. He was extremely literate, not just in the Jewish scriptures, but in ancient writings. He was a Roman citizen, for crying out loud. I mean, Paul, he could have come as one of those brilliant orators supported by wealthy patrons. In fact, there were people who tried to give him money to do that. He refused it, choosing instead to teach a better way, a better philosophy. So instead, he comes as a low-status, tent-making slave, and he proclaims a carpenter killed on a cross. I read this. I thought it was pretty fascinating. It said that Paul was a man of considerable status inconsistency. Interesting phrase, status inconsistency. Paul was a man of status inconsistency who also taught about a man of status inconsistency, Jesus, who, although he was in very nature God, 
humbled himself into the likeness of a human being, became a servant, gave his life, humbled himself even to death on a cross. All right, so here's how Paul starts this letter we're going to immerse ourselves in. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, to together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what jumps right out at you here, I think, is how the name Christ, Jesus, or Lord is actually coming up 11 times just in these three verses alone. Paul is preoccupied with this man. Paul brings his hero into Corinth, a lowly carpenter who died a shameful death as a despised criminal. Okay, a failure by every conventional standard. But Paul insists that Jesus Christ is not only the revelation of who God is, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus, but that he's also the very demonstration, the expression of a life rightly lived. And then on the cross, Jesus is actually going to put to death sin and guilt and hell and mortality that have destroyed the human race. Basically, Jesus is killing it. And and then they buried him in a tomb, rolled a giant stone in front of it, didn't stop Jesus. He rolled the stone away. And in his resurrection, Jesus started a new way to be human. See, it turns out that the pathway to the good life, it's not found in all that we think, accumulation, wealth, status, success, self-promotion, but rather in submission to this God with generosity, humility, with tent makers and slaves and a few wealthy people in this community of status inconsistency, Jew and Gentile, male and female, Slave and free, rich and poor. In fact, Paul himself was kind of the poster boy for this, even starting with his name. You know, Paul was a Greek name, but he used to be named Saul. You see, Saul was a name that would have had a lot of meaning for him. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul was a name of great pride, but Paul gives that up. He gives up that pride, that egocentrism, in order to identify with people he once despised. Why? so that he can embrace all the people of the world that Jesus loves. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So, okay, he does call himself an apostle, but in Corinth, they would have expected him to say, oh, I'm the greatest of all the apostles. I mean, after all, he's the apostle Paul. He wrote more letters in the New Testament than anybody else. He doesn't promote his apostleship. And I'm telling you, it's not an accident that in this very letter, Paul would write this, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul, you're killing it. You're killing it. And then he talks about our brother Sosthenes. Now, maybe Sosthenes was a really successful guy. We see him over in Acts 18, where Paul kind of gets into trouble for talking about Jesus before this Roman official, Gallio. And by the way, all this happens in Corinth. We're told, then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever, whatever. And we sometimes think it's a challenge to follow Jesus in our day because people might think it's unfashionable or intolerant. Paul talks about our brother Sosthenes who gets beaten up by this crowd 
and the government does nothing. Still, Sosthenes, he stands with Paul for the love of Corinth. Sosthenes, you're killing it. But what a strange community this is. Tent makers, carpenters, slaves, guys getting beaten up, really, in Corinth, of all places. And then Paul begins to teach the Corinthians. And I want you to check this out. It's, it's very subtle at first, right? But it starts right away. And I, I love this. We're going to have a lot of fun going through this letter together. Paul says, To the church of God in Corinth, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. This is not unique just to the church of God in Corinth, but to everybody else. In other words, hey, Corinth, you're not all that. Okay? You're not the only pebble on the beach. What matters is not that you are in Corinth, but that somehow, somehow, Christ is in you. Folks, there's a reason this letter's been around for 2,000 years. It's unbelievable. And sometimes I'll hear people say, well, the Bible's just this ancient, irrelevant book. Not so. Folks, Paul grapples in this letter with religious pluralism, multiculturalism, human divisiveness, a fractured society, extreme sexual activity and scandal, the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, prophesying, gender roles, how men and women are to relate to each other in the church and in the home, how to pursue spiritual growth, how to not grumble or quarrel or be greedy. And we're gonna dive into these truths, okay? You know, this book, it actually has the greatest chapter and the greatest words ever written on the subject of love. Words that have been read at more weddings than any other words in human history. This one book has the greatest chapter on hope ever written, this book in the Bible. Now, I think you should know up front here that for most of this letter, Paul is taking the church of Corinth to the woodshed, okay? I mean, they are mostly terrible Christians. They're like spiritual knuckleheads, basically. And I was thinking about this, just to be honest with you. You know, I remember when I was a kid and one of my brothers would get into trouble. You know, I used to love listening to my parents chastise them because I'm thinking, hey, at least I'm not the one in trouble right here. You know, reading this book is kind of that way, just a little bit. But it's so interesting to me because Paul doesn't start there. Paul doesn't start there. I love the way Paul starts off here. He starts with this, grace to you. Isn't that great? Grace to you. Hey, hey Corinth, hey, crazy, ladder-climbing, status-obsessed, money-making, self-promoting, self-sufficient Christians. Hey, grace. Man, I love that. So different from most churches, though, right? that kind of are busy slamming people first. Grace to you. You know, typically Greek letters, they would start with the term karen, which means greeting, greeting. But Paul, he changes that Greek word ever so slightly to charis, which means grace. And then he follows it up with the classic Hebrew term shalom, peace. Grace and peace have come to Corinth. They didn't earn it. They didn't acquire it. They didn't compete for it. And neither do we. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, do we need it. And I think sometimes when you're living in Corinth, you can forget that. You know, back in 2010 in Chile, some of you may recall this story. There were 33 miners who were trapped 2,000 feet underground for 69 days. And their need for God was incredible. Their need actually drove them to God because they knew they couldn't do it. And they actually went to a Christian that they knew down there, Jose Enrique. They knew him well for his faith. And they said, would you please lead us in a daily Bible study? It was quite well attended. You want to guess how many of those guys of the 33 attended that? Yeah, all 33 of the people attended it. 
all 33. You say, well, they had nothing better to do, maybe. But, but I want you to listen to this story about the events there in the mine. And I've kind of had to trim this down a little bit. There's so many stories from all the individuals that were down there. But talk about one up front here. Jose got down on his knees. Okay, this is the, the leader, the Christian guy. Jose got down on his knees the first time and started to pray, Lord, we are not the best of men, but have pity on us. And then he got more specific. Lord, Victor Segovia over here knows he drinks too much. <laughs> You'd think Victor might have objected at that point, but when you're desperate, you tend to get real. <laughs> Anyhow, he goes through different stories. He says, nobody had ever lived that low that long and survived to tell about it until now. It was a massive rescue operation. The government had to drill two holes a half mile deep into the earth to get supplies in. It took weeks and weeks and weeks. When they finally got them out, they came out one at a time. And with every man was this unbelievable celebration. Every man saved. With everyone, the whole world exploded. And on the site, oh my gosh, they went crazy. Mario Sepulveda was the second guy out and he was just dancing, jumping up and down, high-fiving all of his rescuers. The whole nation was just charmed by this guy. And then came a great-grandfather. And then came a 19-year-old boy. And then Victor Segovia. And, and I could go on and on and on, but I think you get the gist here. Every one of them, it's so interesting, had a story. And not one of them was a perfect story. In fact, one of the guys, a guy named Yanni Barrios, okay, who was rescued, he actually had two women waiting for him above the ground. Yeah. Yeah. One was his wife and one was his mistress. And, and the first woman did not know about the second woman which may explain why he was one of the last guys to come out. But anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> but <laughs> it's so interesting to me. I mean, these are big, tough miners. And yet not one of them said, hey, I don't need any help. Not one of them said, hey, I can rescue myself. No, thanks. See, they knew that if someone up there didn't come down here where we are, we have no hope. They knew they could not save themselves. But grace comes to a mine in Chile. It comes to this crazy city called Corinth. It comes to us right here. And so this week, as we begin this spiritual journey together, as we walk through this book, I wanna ask you to just let grace come. Just humble yourself, confess your sin. Say, God, I need your help. Just let go of the need to, to prove yourself, to try to advance yourself, to promote yourself, to try and save yourself. Just let grace come. Now, this is the beginning of Paul's message. And the gist of his message, along with all that Jesus taught and did, it actually can be summarized in one single idea, one single image, one single expression of love that has transformed individuals and marriages and families and even entire cultures. It can change your life as well. And we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, what do I do right now? What do I do in my condition? All right, what do I do with my pride? my selfishness, my stubborn ego? What do I do with my deceit, my apathy toward other people, my anger, my bitterness? What am I gonna do with my sinful self and the evil that's not just all around me, but in me? What am I gonna do with that? I'm killing it. I'm killing it. You can too. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> I've been excited about walking through this book. And I know we're going to have a couple series this year and maybe even into next year as we continue because there's so much good stuff here. And I'm blown away by the parallels of the city of Corinth to where we live today in our culture today. And the topics that are covered, they're so relevant 
to where we're at. There's nothing new under the sun. Heavenly Father, I, I just thank you that into our lives, into our Corinth, into our world, <clears throat> grace has come. Our friend Jesus has come. And I pray especially right now, God, for everybody who, who feels like maybe they're about 2,000 feet beneath the earth, buried by failure or hopelessness or fear or guilt or regret or exhaustion or uncertainty. God, would you just touch them right now? And just like grace came to Corinth, let it come here. Let it come here to Georgetown, Texas. Let it come here to the people of Hill Country Bible Church. Let it come to everyone who needs it because we all need that grace and that peace. And in many ways, like the Corinthians, we stumble. We're knuckleheads spiritually so often. But your grace is sufficient for all that. So God, would your grace just come down upon us and as we go through this series and future series, would you speak to us through this amazing book of the Bible? It's in Jesus' name we pray.